This evening we'll be reading from Luke chapter 1. We'll be reading Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. We'll be reading the story of Mary, and especially Mary's song of thanksgiving for Jesus Christ. So, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy." as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray for God's work as we turn to his word now. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to hear the truth from your word. These are the words of life. And we pray that you would teach us and change us, that you would increase our prayers and our trust and our obedience, and that you would do this through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the only way that we will know and be changed and be willing and able to serve you. We pray this because you have promised to do this when your word is proclaimed, that you will be here powerfully applying it to us. Do that this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, our sermon is coming from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 11. That's 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 11. Remember what we saw last time is we saw the promise of the birth of Samuel. Hannah prayed for God to answer her, to meet her in her need, and he gave her a son, Samuel. But it wasn't just for Hannah. God gave Samuel to be able to serve all of his people. What we see here in chapter 2 is we're looking at Hannah as she gives thanks for what God has done for her and what God has done for all of his people. Let's start in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. 
For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Well, we are looking at Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving tonight. That's the bulk of our passage, verses 1 through 10. Hannah's prayer here is one of the great prayers of Scripture. But at first glance, it doesn't really seem to fit here, does it? You could slip this prayer right into the middle of the Psalms, and it'd fit right there. But Hannah's prayer doesn't seem to fit the context, right? She doesn't seem to be responding to what God has done in giving her Samuel. I know my prayers of thanksgiving don't sound like this. They kind of run more along the lines of God. Thank you for giving me fill in the blank, right? Very clear about this is what I prayed for, and this is how you answered me. Thank you. Maybe you're more like me. I'm guessing you probably are. But what we're going to see tonight is that Hannah is responding to what God is doing. But she is responding not just in prayer, but actually in prophecy. The Holy Spirit here helps Hannah to look at how God has helped her and to see how God will help his people both in her own time through Samuel and David and ultimately through Christ. What we see tonight is that God sovereignly works out his plan to bless and protect his people through his king. God sovereignly is working out his plan and that plan is to bless and protect his people and he does that through his king. So we look at Hannah's prayer together. I think it might be helpful just to give an overview to help us walk through the passage together. Hannah begins with her own thanksgiving in verse 1. Then she moves on to reflect on God's character in verses 2 to 3. Then God's control, verses 48, with a special focus on how God reverses situations. And finally, Hannah ends by reflecting on God's rule in verses 9 to 10. We're going to look at those four sections together as we learn from Hannah tonight. Let's look first at Hannah's thanksgiving in verse 1. Hannah's thanksgiving here is very personal. Notice what she says. It's my heart, my horn, my mouth. I rejoice. But the focus of her thanksgiving is not herself. It's on God. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. Why? Because I rejoice in your salvation. In in this verse, Hannah finds joy 
and honor and security in God alone. This is already instructive for us as we pray because Hannah has received a great gift in the, in the gift of Samuel. This is something she had been praying for and waiting for years to get from God. But now what Hannah does is praise the giver, God, instead of just focusing on the gift of Samuel. She gives thanks for her salvation and not just for her son. But she does praise God, and she praises God for her blessings. That's what the joy, honor, and security are, God's blessings on her. And Hannah recognizes that these blessings are only possible through her covenant God. It's because he is the Lord, the God who loves his people. It's because he is the Lord that she can have these blessings. Remember what we saw from last week? Hannah does this again. She is relying on God's covenant. Hannah again ties her prayers to God's covenant character. The prayers of Hannah, both in chapter 1 and here in chapter 2, are the personal application of God's promises to his people. But as we look at Hannah's thanksgiving, we see that it it seems to go far beyond the birth of Samuel. Has Samuel's birth alone led to her joy and honor and security? Or is there something more? Is Samuel alone God's salvation for Hannah? Well, in a certain way, yes. God has provided for her needs. He has saved her from barrenness. He's given her joy. He has given her honor. But remember that this prayer is a prophecy as well as a thanksgiving. Hannah, through the birth of Samuel, has gotten a glimpse of what God will do through Samuel for his people. Her own, another way to say it is her own personal situation is part of God's larger plan. And she seems to be praising God, not just for what he's done for her, but for the greater salvation he is working for his people. So she gives personal thanksgiving, and that leads her to reflect on who this God is, to look at God's character. We see that secondly in verses 2 to 3. The whole prayer here is actually moving from the very particular I to the very general, what God will do from Hannah's own experience to what God will do for all of his people, this is part of the prophetic nature of the prayer because Hannah sees that her situation serves as a type or as an example of what God will do for all of his people. And Hannah's reflection on God's character begins that transition to focus on what God is doing beyond her. Because as she looks at God, she sees how God has acted toward her, and she knows he will do that same thing toward others. In verse 2, Hannah looks at God's character. She highlights God's holiness, his uniqueness, and his strength. These truths about God appear throughout the Old Testament repeatedly. You can think about God's own command to the people. Be holy because I am holy. That's all the way through Leviticus. Or think about his own declaration, there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other, Isaiah 45, 6. 
Or think about the image of God as a rock for his people. Again, this is all the way through the Old Testament. You can see it in Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32 as he encourages the people. Or also many places in the Psalms that God is a sure refuge as a rock. What's the point? Why is Hannah coming back to these truths that show up so many times in Scripture? Hannah is rehearsing truths about God to remind herself and to remind us how different God is from us, but also because of that, how much we can trust him. And trusting God is particularly important as we see what God does in verses 4 to 8. But Hannah first draws our attention to two other aspects of God's character, his knowledge and his wisdom. Hannah says that God's knowledge and wisdom should stop our pride. And it should do that because he knows all things. There is nothing hidden from God, and he weighs actions perfectly. You know, this could mean that he knows what every person does and is able to judge those actions for what they are. We see that throughout Scripture. We see that even further in the book of Samuel. As he says, God looks at the heart, not just on the outside. But in the context of what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it seems that when, we, when uh, Hannah is praying and says that God weighs actions perfectly, it seems to be more about God's own wise actions, right? That God knows what to do and when. Part of why I say that is because verses 4 to 8 are all about what God does in his wisdom and understanding for his people. So we've seen Hannah's thanksgiving. We've seen her, she's looked at God's character. And then she points us towards God's control in verses 4 through 8. And this really, the, the center section of Hannah's prayer, Hannah praises God for his control over the world he's made. God is directly involved in the lives of men. And if you look closely at the cases that Hannah mentions, especially in verses 4 to 5, you see that this control is shown in unexpected reversals. The strong become weak and the weak become strong. The fool becomes hungry and the hungry fool. The barren woman is fulfilled with children while the mother loses hers. I think we often have a kind of, um, that's the way the world works kind of mentality. Even as Christians, right? The strong get stronger The rich get richer. There's not really much hope. That's the way the world is. That's the way the world works. That's not the teaching of Scripture. That is not the teaching of Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer stops us in our tracks with that kind of thinking. God is in control. We see his wisdom and power as he works in ways that we don't expect. But we also need to recognize and praise God that his works, these reversals that he is doing, these are not random. He's not just showing us his power. He's doing this for a purpose. Let me illustrate this from the book of Samuel. If you read the story of Saul and David in 1 Samuel, there are times when there seems to be no hope for David. He is a weak warrior running away from Saul and his army. There is one moment when he is on one side of the mountain and Saul and his entire army are on the other side. David is dead meat. And then God calls Saul away. Those are the low points in David's life. 
And yet if we look at the whole scope of the book, we see God working a great reversal in the lives of Saul and David. Saul begins as the great king and he dies and his kingdom is left in ruins. David, David, the one who's been running for his life, is firmly established as God's chosen king. God works a great reversal in the lives of Saul and David, and he does this for the good of his people. God gives Israel the king they need, not the king they want, the king they need, and he establishes the kingdom. That is the purpose of what God does as he makes these great reversals in the lives of his people. God is firmly in control of everything, and he's in control for a purpose. Now, verses 6 to 8, Hannah continues that theme of God's control. He's in charge of life and death. He's in charge of poverty and riches. And especially, we see his control as he delights to exalt the poor. Look again at verse 8. It is all about God's work of exalting the poor. Now, we know that God loves to exalt humble believers. Look at 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the right time, he will raise you up. And we see that same kind of work of God raising humble believers in the book of Samuel. We've actually seen this already in the life of Hannah. Hannah, a godly woman who doesn't have a child, God raises her up and exalts her as the mother of Samuel. And we see this even further, God's work of exalting his servants through David. David goes from a shepherd boy to a king. He goes from being the eighth son of Jesse, kind of an afterthought, to God's anointed. Compare David to Saul. From the moment we first meet Saul in 1 Samuel 9, we see a king. He is a head taller than everybody else. He is handsome. He looks like the ideal leader. But he's not. Because he acts with pride over and over again. God humbles the proud and he raises up his humble servants like Hannah and like David. Again, as we see God's control play out that way in the book of Samuel, we're reminded that God is working all things out according to his perfect plan. And it is a plan to bless his people. He brings blessing to David and to his people through his work. Now, Hannah shows us that God's active control like this in the lives of men, the lives of his people, comes from his power to create and sustain the world. Verse 8, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Remember who we are praising in this prayer. We're praising the Creator. Of course he can direct the lives of men. He has established the very world that we live in. And he hasn't left us alone. He is active in what he has made. As Hannah moves into this final section of her prayer then, Her vision expands beyond how God works in the world to accomplish his plan toward the goal of God's plan. What is God's doing? God is establishing 
His rule. That's what we see fourth and finally, God's rule in verses 9 to 10. And when I say God's rule, I mean something very specific. I don't just mean God's general rule over creation, his control over the world. That's what we've just seen in verses 4 to 8. No. Verses 9 to 10 point us to God's rule as king in judging evil and in establishing his everlasting kingdom. In these verses, we see that his people are protected. His enemies are judged and defeated, and his king reigns. Again, as we look at this section, we see prophetic glimpses of God's work in Saul and David. God guards the feet of David as faithful servant, but he cuts off wicked Saul. And even a king like Saul cannot resist God. He cannot rely on his own might to keep his throne. When God has rejected him, that's the end of the story. There is nothing more that Saul can do to stay safe. And also in these verses, we see for the first time in the book of Samuel, the hope of a king. Notice what Hannah prays in verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. God will strengthen and exalt David, his anointed king. As Hannah prays especially for a king, she is prophesying. We know that. But she is also resting on God's own promises to give his people a king. There are at least three times before this in the Old Testament that God promises his people a king. As Jacob dies, he prophesies that the king will come from his son Judah. Look at Genesis 49. Or do you remember that evil prophet Balaam? We know about him and his ass. But do you remember when he came to curse Israel, do you remember his prophecy? He saw clearly that God would give Israel a strong king. Numbers 24. But God even went further because he taught his people through Moses about the requirements for a godly king. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's so clear that God is promising to give his people a king. God has been preparing his people from Jacob on to receive a king like David. But Hannah's words here point far beyond David. They point toward God's rule in Christ. Look carefully at the details here. Look at the judgment that is promised. The judgment here sounds permanent. God's enemies will be cut off in darkness and broken to pieces. This is a permanent judgment that God is working. But even more significant, look at the promise. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. In many of the Psalms, there's a very similar promise. Think, for instance, of just two Psalms, Psalm 96 and 98. They end very similarly. We'll look just at Psalm 96 as an example. Psalm 96, 13 For the Lord comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. That is a promise of something that God will do in the future from the time of the writing of that psalm. It's looking forward. So that promise in the psalms here in Hannah's prayer is directly linked to the king that God will give. We know David was a a strong and exalted king, but his kingdom never stretched to the ends of the earth. 
He went from the sea to the river. That was big, but certainly not to the ends of the earth. And the Lord did not judge those ends of the earth in David's day. So Hannah's prayer is a prophecy about David, but it is even more a prophecy about Christ. He is the king. He is the king who is strong and exalted. He is the anointed one. Remember what that word means? That is Messiah. Messiah. This is the first time in the Old Testament that the word Messiah is used. And as we look forward throughout the entire Old Testament, we see this word used time and again for Israel's kings. We see it in Samuel as God calls Saul and David his anointed ones. Those are God's kings, but especially as we look through the entire Old Testament, we see the promise of the anointed one. We saw it in Psalm 2, and we see it in the prophets that God is sending a king, the anointed one, the Messiah. This is the true king of Israel, Israel's greatest king, King David. He is just a type or a shadow of the greatest king of all, King Jesus. Hannah's prayer here gives the people of Israel great hope because they see an initial fulfillment in David. They do receive a strong and exalted king. David gives Israel rest from all their enemies, and David leads the people back to God. He leads them into a greater worship of God. But Hannah's prayer gives so much greater hope because, again, she's pointing forward to King Jesus and his rule. He is the king whose kingdom covers the entire world. His kingdom is actually over all of creation, not just people, but everything that he's made. We saw that in Colossians. And he is the perfect, just, godly king. And his people are perfectly blessed and completely protected under his rule. We are living the fulfillment of Hannah's prophecy today because we are living in Jesus' kingdom. There's much more to come when he returns. We're looking forward to the time when he comes, yes, and when he will finally defeat all of his enemies and he'll bring us into that place of blessing forever. And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come. That's why we pray that week after week because we want Jesus to continue that work of spreading his kingdom, of bringing his enemies either to salvation or to judge them. But see clearly, Jesus has established his kingdom. He has established his kingdom when he came to earth. We've seen that in the gospel of Mark, that the kingdom comes in the coming of the king. Jesus is ruling and reigning right now, and you and I are part of his kingdom. That is something to be so thankful for as we look at our lives. But as we look at the end of this passage, maybe you're still a bit like me and wondering at the end of Hannah's prayer, what am I supposed to be learning from Hannah? What is God teaching me here? I mean, I'm not prophesying. I'm not doing that. What is Hannah's prayer and God's work that Hannah's praying about? What is that supposed to teach me? Let me encourage you with a few thoughts as we close. Pray with the bigger picture in mind. Our prayers are often so limited. When we pray for something like 
what Hannah is praying for. And when we give thanks for something, what God answers our prayers, our prayers are so often just focused on ourselves and what God will do for us or what God has done for us. But a psalm or a prayer like Hannah's reorients our prayers towards God's priorities, towards God's power and toward his work in all of redemption. This is a refreshing perspective that we quickly lose when we are too focused on ourselves. So pray with the bigger picture of God's work in mind. But also, secondly, see your experience in the light of that bigger picture. That is what Hannah does. Yes, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but that is essentially what Hannah does. She is seeing what has happened to her and seeing how it fits into God's plan. We often miss this as well in our lives. God is establishing his kingdom, and we are part of that kingdom. That means that every single thing that happens to you as an individual, and every single thing that happens to us as a church is part of God's bigger plan. Let me give you some examples. Were you able to fight sin this week? Can you look back at the week and think of times when you were able to fight sin and resist temptation? Or was there a time, either in worship or in your own time, when you understood more about God? Just think about this one week that's gone past. Or were you able to tell someone about Christ? Or were you able to pray deeply? Or were you able to worship God with more of your heart? Those seem like pretty ordinary events, but they aren't. Nothing in the life of a believer is ever ordinary. This is God's extraordinary work. God is establishing his kingdom in and through us. If we pray and give thanks with that truth in mind, we see that our prayers and our experiences have eternal weight and significance. Everything that happens to us is part of God's greater plan to be building his kingdom and be bringing that to completion. But really, thirdly and finally, the biggest takeaway by far from this passage is this, that Christ rules his kingdom, and he rules us, and that makes all the difference in our lives. Now, you can look in the Old Testament, those Old Testament prophecies. I already mentioned Psalm 2. We're about to sing Psalm 72, how God is sending his king to judge. He will have dominion from sea to sea. He is covering the whole earth with his blessing. Those are the Old Testament prophecies. We are living the New Testament reality. And think about what a great king that we have. What has our king done for us? He is the king who saved us. Do you want to talk about God working dramatic reversals in the history of the world, in the lives of his people? God's salvation is the most dramatic reversal in all of human history. Christ, the Son of God, voluntarily gave up the riches of heaven to experience life in a fallen world and to die on the cross for sinners who hated him. And now, God has raised Christ, his humble servant, not just to sit with some princes, but God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the highest place with the greatest honor and the strongest rule. And Christ now has the name that is above every name. And everyone and everything will confess him as Lord. 
And because of the work of our king, our lives have been reversed as well, that we in our sin hated God. And God has taken sinners, and through the work of Christ, he has made them sons in his kingdom. He has taken each one of us here who believe in him, taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and of Satan, and brought us in the kingdom of his beloved son. This is who we are, and this is the king that we serve now, a powerful, loving victorious king. And today, we see his kingdom spreading and strengthening. We're just one tiny piece of what God is doing in all of history and all around the world. We're just one tiny piece as Peninsula Reform Presbyterian Church. We're just one tiny piece as the entire OPC. But Christ is using us. Christ, our king, is working, and he rules us Well, do you want protection from sin and Satan and the world? We have it day by day in Christ our King. Do you want blessing? We have it. We have the riches of wisdom that are found only in Christ our King. And we have the blessings of salvation and eternal life. We can't get that anywhere else outside of Christ. That's what he's won for us as our King. And that's what he gives us as he reigns. And it's only getting better because Christ is still at work. Christ is still reigning. He is still ruling. He is bringing his people to salvation and he is bringing us to heaven. When we're in heaven, we will see more clearly and experience more fully what we see in this passage. We will see God's character. We will see God's control And we'll see God's rule in Christ, and that will lead us to eternal thanksgiving. Let's encourage one another then. Let's encourage one another with the reality, the reality of Christ's kingship, to give thanks for King Jesus and his perfect reign in our lives and in the world. And let's encourage one another to look forward to when his kingdom comes in his fullness, his reign is completed, his people are gathered, his enemies are defeated, and we have life in heaven forever. We are serving a king who will never lose. We are living in a kingdom that will never be shaken, and we have an eternity with that king and in that kingdom forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, these are glorious truths that we see through the prayer of Hannah. You really are at work in amazing ways to fulfill your plan, your plan for us and your plan for all of creation. And your plan has been and always will be to establish Jesus Christ, your son, our king, to create a kingdom that will never be shaken, an eternal kingdom And Lord, we thank you that you have brought us home into that kingdom. We thank you for the gracious, loving, powerful rule of King Jesus. We thank you for his work in bringing us into his kingdom and salvation, his work of sustaining us, and his work of promising and bringing eternal life in him. Lord, help each one of us to live as faithful, gracious, thankful servants in your kingdom and help each one of us to encourage one another and ourselves through what you are doing now 
and what you will do as our King through all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.